0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 25, William the Bastard. Today, we revisit young William and see the next stage in his evolution from fearful young boy to bold young Duke in the years between 1035 and 1043. To say he had a traumatic childhood would be the understatement of the millennium. I hope you enjoy the show. not only jarred the French court, but it also rocked the duchy itself. Their duke, though not so beloved, was a respected ruler who had the fortitude to navigate Norman and French politics with an ease rarely seen in the kingdom. Normandy had seen five leaders before Robert the Magnificent, Counts Rollo and William Longsword, and the three Duke Richards. And though they were all pretty much seen in a positive light when it comes to the progress of the upstart region of West Francia, it wasn't until Robert I that Normandy became a bona fide regional presence that began to truly export its influence. Sure, Richard I's daughter was betrothed to the King of England, and Duke Richard II was courted by kings from both England and Denmark, but Robert, he rebuffed his king in Paris he quelled uprisings around northern France. He made an attempt against Canute the Great's standing in England. He beat back an attack from Brittany next door. I mean, the guy stared the papacy in the eye and didn't blink first. This, all in only about eight years, beginning with his small but fiery civil uprising against his brother, the Duke, culminating with him possibly murdering that brother. When word reached West Francia of his passing somewhere north of Jerusalem, it wasn't as if people took, you know, a few days to mourn the death of a duke and then go quietly back to their castles until the nobility could peaceably resolve the succession issue. If only it were that simple. This wasn't like other succession crises through the Middle Ages, when hot-headed and disagreeable sons clashed, or a powerful and influential wife played her sons or new husbands against one another, thus keeping her at the top of the political food chain for as long as possible. See, Robert was never married, so that whole influential wife bit wasn't even a question. And without a marriage, Robert failed to sire any children that could assume the title of Duke in his stead. Normally, if this were it, well, it seems that a succession crisis would occur between a distant cousin, or even, in this case, Robert's Aunt Emma and her new husband, Canute. Unfortunately for Emma, inside of five months, she too would be looking for alternative lodgings, having been displaced by the death of a husband twice in England already. So Canute wasn't even an issue in 1035. See, though a bachelor, Robert still sired two children, William and the oft-forgotten Adeliza. These children shared a mother, a woman named Herleva, whom we mentioned before in the podcast. Off to a Norman nobleman of upright standing in the duchy. This kind of legitimizing them in some way, but make no mistake that these two children were still derided as non-nobility due to their mother's status as a peasant prior to her marriage. This, if you remember, is where we find the rub. See, remember on the last episode when Child Protective Services was called on Robert for decking his seven-year-old son in front of his nobleman? Well, it turns out Child Protective Services in the 11th century Normandy consisted of men by the name of Osborne Fitzartfest, or also Osborne Fitzharfist, depending on how you, uh, what you're reading. William's tutor, Count Gilbert, of both you and Briand. Count Alan III of Brittany, the guy Robert had pushed out of Normandy years before a man named Tarchetel, and arguably most important was the very uncle Robert had won the staring match against the Pope about, Archbishop Robert of Rouen. Upon the death of Duke Robert in 1035, these men would form the protective shell that surrounded William's earliest years. This cannot be understated. These men, some of them quite literally, would sacrifice everything for William's safety and right to the duchy. Why the need for such a contingent of loyalists to the late Duke's illegitimate son? Well, I mean, the key word is in one of William's earliest description. Ill- illegitimate. As far as European politics went, William was not a legitimate, recognized heir to anything. But it was here, in 1035, that William wasn't just known as an illegitimate son, from this point forward, his enemies would further reduce his legitimacy by giving him the sobering sobriquet of William the Bastard. Now, I feel it's necessary to stop and take a look at the age-old tactic being used here by William's opponents. Calling him a bastard served a far deeper purpose than merely pointing out the lack of inheritance within the polity. Far worse, actually. In fact, it's one of the most sinister tactics in disagreements, from ad campaigns to war itself. The Merriam-Webster defines the word in both noun and adjective form. As a noun, it means an illegitimate child and something spurious, irregular, inferior, or of questionable origin. William the Bastard, the, the name, did more than poke fun at William's bloodline. It sought to politically delegitimize him and see the thing about being a child of a deceased crown is that they're easily dispatched and removed from any sort of succession uprising in the future. We see this in history as well as in fiction. You know, Canute was quick to dispatch Edwig, son of Ethelred and brother of Edmund Ironside, when he took the throne. While those familiar with the series A Song of Fire and Ice will remember when Robert Baratheon's illegitimate children were hunted down and murdered after his untimely death. By demeaning a public figure with claims so high on the political pecking order as William, a clear message was being sent. This boy has no claim and he will be dealt with appropriately. The other definition Merriam-Webster provides for the word is, as I said, an adjective. One definition is of mixed or ill-conceived origin. Of ill-conceived origin. The very idea of his conception is pulled into question, maybe some making the case that Robert and Herleva's love affair amounted to an unholy alliance of spoiled spirits, It goes on to mention, specifically, his inferiority, which really strikes at the heart of what this explanation seeks to illuminate, the dehumanization of an opponent as a means for defeating them. This, of course, is a well-known and widely, unfortunately, accepted tactic used from ancient times all the way up to the present. Fiction gives a plethora of examples, from the way in which Ephialtes of Trachis, the traitor to the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, was portrayed in Frank Miller's graphic novel 300, to which group was portrayed as which animal, you know, in George Orwell's Animal Farm. But in this regard, more than many others, fiction without question mirrors reality. Dehumanization tactics occur in isolated incidents in otherwise liberal intolerant societies, as well as large-scale nationwide propaganda programs, specifically meant to dehumanize one or more groups. According to the worldwatchmonitor.org, in 1994, Rwandan Hutus systematically defined their Tutsi neighbors as, quote, termites and cockroaches, which resulted in about one million Tutsi deaths. Have you ever taken a look at the Nazi political cartoons published in the 1930s? <laughs> Jews were almost every time depicted as Human, but still not quite human in their appearance. After years of that portrayal, the Yellow Star came out as mandatory with the words Achtung Juden, which meant warning, a Jew. We know the tragedy that ensued with that sort of widely accepted disparagement. There's no shortage, sadly, to the use of dehumanization to conquer a group of people. And the Middle Ages were not really too different than modern times which should be a pretty sobering thought. But William is just one person. What does all this have to do with William? Well, these same tactics are used with specific individuals as well. It happens everywhere, but take a look at the United States politics for just a moment. Delegitimization runs rampant when it comes to opponents to elected office. Dr. Daniel Batal Israeli professor at Tel Aviv University, categorized five distinct ways to legitimize others. The ones that seem to apply to Williams' situation are the exact same as what we're seeing in American politics today. When Hillary Clinton, for instance, in 2016, referred to half of the American body politic as, quote, deplorables, she employed the tactic of trait characterization in which she attacked and dismissed those conservatives who were supporting her challenger to the presidency, Donald Trump. To be fair, Donald Trump is masterful in this type of delegitimization when he calls his opponents, you know, by special nicknames, you know, for instance, calling Hillary Clinton a a nasty woman, or making fun of Rand Paul's hair on stage, and calling his current challenger Sleepy Joe for his lackluster ability to create a crowd no bigger than a line at a neighborhood deli at his rallies. You know, current members of this extreme left refer to anyone not them as, quote, literal fascists and Nazis, which blend the two forms of delegitimization by condemning them in political terms and members of a specific social group. As you can see, when you break down any situation throughout history, Where there are clear opponents, you will most likely find some sort of dehumanization. I say that with a heavy heart. It is sad. But it is reality. William faced the exact same obstacles. He was no longer William the illegitimate. Now that the great duke, Robert le Magnifique, was dead, there was now a vacancy at the top, and Normans were nothing if not a restless, quarrelsome bunch. William was beyond merely illegitimate. William was now inferior. He was of ill-conceived origin. He was less than. He was offensive. William was now William the Bastard. You know, that very last definition of bastard that Merriam-Webster provides is the death knell for William's acceptance into the duchy during those years. William, by his birth, lacked authority. By referring to William as the bastard, those Norman houses who opposed Robert weaponized against their leadership. William was not equal to them, even though Robert had them swear allegiance to William mere months before. William was to be dealt with as if he were a pest of the duchy, a cockroach, or a stray dog. He was, in essence, deplorable, not by act, but by mere existence. His mere existence was illegitimate. He didn't deserve what he'd been given, therefore he couldn't possibly lead such a rough-and-tumble people. He was again inferior. Seven-year-old William would today be called a literal fascist, I'm pretty sure, but the why behind a person's dehumanization is never as important as the act of dehumanization itself. It's comforting to know, by definition, a terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Or maybe it's not, maybe it just seeks to confuse things further. Was William, the illegitimate son of Robert I, the the best person for the job? I mean, the kid was still only seven years old. What makes him the best choice to run an entire duchy that consisted of descendants of Norse Vikings anyway? His blood? Hardly. And I think it's safe to say that in 1035, William wasn't exactly the best person for the job. So, how did that one scared little boy, whom no one accepted and many wanted dead, become the Norman Duke. After years of this treatment, that of his dehumanization, he would rise, but his story was going to be one of the roughest stories that emerges from the medieval period. William's accession, despite the duchy being rocked by the news of their duke's passing, was largely, and surprisingly, quiet, at least in the records. But as the months passed, whispers began taking to the Norman winds, And before William knew it, there were audible rumblings of trouble stirring just beneath the political surface. The only thing that held it all together was Archbishop Robert of Rouen, a man who saw to William's life to continue on the same trajectory as it was already on. William, we can only assume due to a lack of records, continued his studies in religion, warfare, Latin, and the other myriad skills one needed to be a knight even though his dubbing had already occurred. However, as the Sharks were content to circle below William's dangling feet, the worst thing for William happened. On March 16th, 1037, Archbishop Robert of Rouen died. There must have been a stunned silence around the duchy. Even opponents might have begun by then to settle into, you know, a a reluctant, complacent orbit around the illegitimate Duke. After they, all, after they all realized the situation, all bets were now off. It was now time to gun for the top, death be damned. There was a mad dash for resources, loyalists, and armies. Factions almost immediately sprang from the rolling hills and farmlands of Normandy, though they were already beginning to silently form, as we've said. And William found himself immersed in a level of politics that grown men in his position wouldn't wish for. His shell closed in around him, and danger was now everywhere. Residing mainly in Falais, his presumed childhood home, was no longer safe. The next blow came as the duchy quickly descended into a state of absolute chaos. The young Duke William was simply powerless to control it, let alone put a stop to it. For decades, Normandy and the, west of, and the rest of West Francia, for that matter, as we've learned already, slid into a socio-economic pattern later called feudalism. Knights were created essentially to rein in the relative freedom of the peasantry. Franks were known for their fierce independence and cooperation with others. However, they were also known for their fierce defiance toward too much authority. Knights balanced the scales at first, and then tipped them in favor of the nobility. By William's time, the peasantry was largely subdued. Also by William's time, the nobility, mainly a newly knighted man, began boldly defying custom and building their own earthworks and stone keeps and castles. This was without question an affront to power, though it had become too prevalent for mere decree to counter and even the French king was more or less powerless to overcome the trend. In short, Frankish and Norman knights were slowly but surely creating stronger and stronger autonomous power centers for themselves, thus diluting the overall hierarchy of power inside the kingdom. In his book, The Norman Conquest, author Mark Morris offers a great summation of this trend and the dangers it imposed upon not only the kingdom— but of individuals as well. He writes, The clearest manifestation of the chaos that followed was the sudden emergence of unlicensed castles. Quote, Lots of Normans, forgetful of their loyalties, built earthworks in many places, explains William of Jumiege, and erected fortified strongholds for their own purposes. Having dared to establish themselves securely in their own fortifications, they immediately hatched plots and rebellions, and fierce fires were lit all over the country. Close the quote on William. Morris continues, The duchy rapidly descended into violence as magnates struggled to gain the upper hand against their rivals. A well-informed 12th century writer called Ordric Vitalis tells the story... Of the unfortunate William Giroy, who was seized by his enemies at a wedding feast, taken outside, and horribly mutilated. His nose and ears cut off, and his eyes gouged out. Normandy seems to have experienced a rash of mafioso-style killings, as powerful families used any methods against each other, knowing that the government of the young Duke William was powerless to protect... Or punish them. End quote. In summation, Normandy was on fire during a drought. The years of 1035 to 1037, as the duchy descended into this this chaos, William was still the nominal duke. From 1037 to 1040. Duke William was able to continue his studies and to conduct business of the region in a fairly stable situation, though it was deteriorating. But by William's thirteenth year, everything, as bad as it already was, stood on the brink of absolute catastrophe. On October 1st, 1040, while Count Alan III of Brittany, one of his protectors, was attempting to quell a minor revolt in Vimoutier, then a part of Normandy, when he was found dead. Contemporaries were all but convinced he was poisoned by opponents of William's. Since 1035, William had lost his respected and doting father, his powerful archbishop protector, and a bold and loyal distant friend of his father's in the Count of Brittany. His three most influential protectors, dead. William's world all but collapsed. You know, I've already promised I'd say this again on the podcast, so here goes. By all accounts, William should not have survived. He had defied the odds by his 10th birthday with the pushback by the most powerful archbishop in the duchy, and he made it to his 13th birthday through the efforts of the count of another region altogether. Day by day, William would conduct his learning as usual, but within each shadow was death itself lying in wait. Behind each tapestry was an assassin ready to strike. Around every corner was a recently sharpened knife, poised at throat level. And on the other side of every door was a person who saw him as inferior, a poser, an imposter. I'm no child psychologist, so I won't pretend to know the inner workings of a child's mind developing in a trauma-filled environment, but it doesn't take one to recognize Williams' childhood as nothing short of traumatic. According to a white paper published in 2019 by the Council for Professional Recognition, children who grow up in a traumatic situation are two times more likely to develop chronic heart conditions and 12 times more likely to commit suicide. They can suffer crippling anxiety, become aggressive very easily and long-term skill retention is far lower compared to their peers. And I certainly don't intend to claim any sort of concrete conclusion about young William. It would be reckless to do so. But it would be interesting to apply today's psychological knowledge to someone like William, someone we know very little about, yet who grew up to defy nearly all the odds and situations similar to what our own society's children grow up in today. Things like extreme loss, ever-present anxiety, fear for one's safety. Fear for the safety of those around him or her, especially since it was because of him or her that they were in such danger. Severe lack of sleep exemplified in an event that we'll get to shortly here. Knowing the patterns of such people today... Lack of sleep has a whole litany of mental and health issues that it causes. Johns Hopkins University professor Dr. Patrick Fanon lists greatly increased risks of depression, irritability, anxiety, forgetfulness, and lack of focus as results of sleep deprivation. Increased risks of high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and cancers, like colorectal cancer, for, for example, are also documented today. With five or fewer hours of sleep per night, you're three times more likely to catch a cold, 33% more likely to develop some sort of dementia, and 48% more likely to develop heart disease. We can only speculate how William's mental and physical health was in his, was in his youth. We can only go off of what the records tell us, but we can imply that many of the same negative effects of childhood trauma impacted young William and surely followed him into adulthood and even pushed him toward greater heights than he possibly imagined upon hearing the death of his father. Now, am I promoting childhood trauma as a necessary precursor to later greatness? Come on, absolutely not. But again, William was not only an outcast. But he was an outlier. He stood as a testament to perseverance, to fortitude, and to familial duty. William made it. And his success was far less in spite of these events than it was because of them in his childhood that he would eclipse all others who came before him. Upon the death of Count Allen, it was now abundantly clear that William was losing friends and losing them fast, Again. Unfortunately, William hadn't yet seen the end of his hardships and loss. Assassination attempts were being foiled more and more frequently, would be killers being caught and seen as mere puppets by wealthier and more influential players hidden in the wings. While William was studying and riding and practicing those skills needed to be a skilled knight and leader, His opponents ceaselessly plotted his overthrow. The situation became so dire, according to William himself, reportedly saying it on his deathbed many decades later, he relayed the stories of his maternal uncle Walter, as well as Robert's most trusted advisor and steward, Osborne Fitzerfest, made the decision to sleep in the boys' bedchambers each and every night. Was this for protection? or from some intense psychological damage the boy was showing. No one knows. As far as we know, it could very well have been, for both reasons, in equal measure. In fact, it might be pretty accurate that it was for both reasons. During the day, Osborne led William through the complexities of Norman and Frankish politics, while he stayed awake for hours on end while the boy slept. For the years between Archbishop Robert's death in 1037, In 1041, he was forced to yank young William from his slumber, toss him out of a window, and escape another attempt on the young Duke's life. Countless nights were spent escaping the relative safety of the keep and running off into a nearby village, maybe a couple miles distant, barging into a peasant's hovel and pleading for asylum for the night. For the brief couple of hours until sunrise, Osborne and Uncle Walter, no doubt no doubt, sat upright and awake, listening to the boys' uneasy breathing, their ears listening intently to the wind and eyes adjusting to the limited light awaiting the inevitable. We focus on William during these years, but Osborne and Walter can be seen as the real heroes of William's early life. In many regards, without his father's loyal steward and his mother's loyal brother, William simply would have, he just wouldn't have made it. These men had bought the boy just enough time to grow into his own. Remember, while already technically a knight, William had years before he actually, as they said, earned his spurs, a phrase that meant that a boy had matured and earned knighthood, as well as being a nod toward the recent advance in horsemanship and warfare. Unfortunately for William, however, they were on bought time their protection, their personal sacrifices, could could only last so long. Echoed throughout literature that transcends culture and era, the dutiful mentor's role must run out so that the hero may rise. So long as the mentor remains, the hero will never achieve his or her full potential, because the protection afforded the hero will be suffocated by the mentor's presence. That is to say, The hero will never be forced to put knowledge and skills into practical action, actions necessary for his or her own survival. You know, in literature, we see Gandalf, who chose to fall into the Black Pit after the Balrog, so that Frodo could finally come into his own. Obi-Wan Kenobi intentionally lowered his defenses and allowed himself to be struck down by Darth Vader, so that Luke could take control of his abilities and bring balance to the force. We see it everywhere. See, shortly after Count Allen's death, in 1041 to 10, or excuse me, 1040 to 1041, the reality facing Normandy hit very close to home when Turold, William's tutor, was murdered. And if that wasn't enough, Osborne had his throat slit one night inside William's bedchamber, no doubt, while William either watched or fled the room. Though Osborne hardly allowed himself to be killed, the pattern holds true. It's an interesting statement about the relationship between art and life to say that had Osborne lived on, would William have oriented himself in the direction he did eventually? We can only imply Osborne's role in William's destiny, but we only know that Osborne was killed in William's bedchamber one night and that William would go on to become a conqueror of kingdoms. Why, though, would William himself not be murdered, too? That's another question that pops up everywhere. I mean, the murderer was so close to having dispatched the protector on duty at that time. Author Mark Morris contends that the intentions were never to murder William. Rather, the plan was to keep William alive and remove the obstacles that would allow them to manipulate the boy instead. Chronicler Orderic Vitalis promoted the idea that this subtle coup was supported by King Henry I himself of France, which is intriguing considering records around this time indicate King Henry demanding a castle in Tillyere on the Norman-Frankish border. It's said that during the years of 1041 to 1043, William most assuredly earned his spurs, Osborne's death triggered a realization in William that amounted to nothing short of game-changing. William was not a leader. William was a pawn. He was seen as a puppet, someone weak enough to be manipulated by those around him. But what the nobility around him saw as a weakness, William used as a stepping stone. After King Henry I demanded and then moved upon a castle near Tillyerre, with the help of Norman knights not even bothering to check with William about the issue, for reasons still unknown to us, King Henry sponsored a rebellion that struck as near to home for William as his own bedchamber was. A local knight decided to take Falais, William's home and birthplace, as well as the residence of his mother, by force. When William learned that soldiers were provided by the French king for the invasion, He learned he could no longer sit idly by and hope things calmed down. Being on the defense was no longer a viable strategy for his life. William gathered supporters and soldiers under his own banner and laid siege to Fillet, to the usurper who dared contend with him in his own home. But he knew this was far larger than what it seemed on the surface. This siege was not only a reclamation of his center of power, No, this this was also direct and public defiance of the king himself. A man who sometime between 1033, when Duke Robert helped the king reclaim his throne in Paris, to 1034, supported William's legitimate claim to the duchy. William wasn't just fighting opposing Norman soldiers. He was standing tall against the king's men. This young 15-year-old Duke, having struggled for almost a decade against a rising, unstoppable tide of deadly opposition, a young man who had witnessed and bore the deaths of those closest to him, this young 15-year-old grew into a man his father would most likely have appreciated a great deal. He was no longer the boy who needed guarding while he slept, no longer needed the training of a mere squire or page. He no longer lived defensively, no longer lived on his heels. He stepped forward into the spotlight of history, and he defied his own king. He picked up the burdens of his duchy, of his people, of his bloodline, and he carried them. He bore them. He was no longer illegitimate, nor was he a bastard, as they called him. Having beaten the king's men and reclaimed Falaise, he was now, without doubt, a duke. William was now, though not quite in full, by name the Duke of Normandy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on William's terrifying years between the death of his father in 1035 and his victory at Falaise in 1043. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know in your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us, too, if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, and please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you're so inclined. William I of Normandy will solidify his place as Duke of the much-embattled Norman Duchy and imprint his authority upon the otherwise anarchic nobility. We will see William establish a new order through compliance, create a new support system to ensure his well-being and rule are observed, and lead his own soldiers in his mission to rise as a preeminent player in not only Norman politics, but also throughout the entire kingdom. I can't wait to tell you about it.